0: Greetings, I'm Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please email me at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's book, I have a very special guest for you, uh, is Thaisa Way, and it is The Landscape Architecture of Richard Hagg, From Modern Space to Urban Ecological Design published by the University of Washington Press in 2015. Hi, Thaisa. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: This is a nice Sunday morning thing to do, isn't it?
1: It is, especially on a rainy day. Good good day to be inside.
0: Well, we've all got our cup of coffee here, and uh, I'd love to talk to you about this book. Tell the audience about yourself and your educational background.
1: Um, so I am a professor of landscape architecture at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, although I'm currently actually taking a leave from that to be at Dumbarton Oaks Research Library and Collection here in D.C. It's a Harvard research institution, the major scholarly institution for garden and landscape history. So, the, And I can talk about that later, but um, it's an incredible opportunity to help shape the broader field of uh, garden and landscape history. Um, in particular with a Mellon grant that I have. But again, I can talk about that later. But um, in my bigger life, I teach history in landscape architecture, architecture, and then also have appointments in the history department and in the Evans School of Public Policy. And that all has to do with my broad view of the history of cities and the built environment. And I've been doing that for a little over 12 years um, with after – having actually two other careers. One as a a owner of a small garden business and working in a garden nursery in California, and then working in the nonprofits uh, world, including museums. I was the head kitchen gardener at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, um, and did some projects around uh, historical gardens in Germany. Um, in a botanical garden, worked in that area and then eventually decided to come back and do an academic degree. So did my I'd done my undergrad at the University of California in Berkeley and actually tried to do landscape architecture. Um, but I didn't really like grading and all the engineering. I realized I was more interested in the ideas and the writing. Couldn't quite figure out what one did with that. So I went into environmental science and writing and through a variety of other, other experiences ended up also then at the University of Virginia and did a master's of architectural history with a project in arts and crafts gardens in California. And then about eight years later at Cornell to do a PhD in architectural history and urbanism. And that's where I did my dissertation on women in landscape architecture, which um, in a way, brings me full circle because p- a major part of that dissertation project was actually on the work of Beatrix Jones-Ferrand, who designed Dunbar and Oaks, which is where I am today, helping to foster the work that she began just about 100 years ago. So that's, that's me.
0: Oh, well, then that explains uh, my next question. Uh, what was your motivation for writing this book?
1: That's that's a great question. So I I really had two motivations. Um, One was I had moved to Seattle, Washington. Um, I knew the city a little bit. I'd lived there briefly during college when I dropped out of college to find myself and thought I could find myself in Seattle. Um, I'm not sure I actually did, but I enjoyed the city. So I was returning to it some 30 years, 25 years later um, and I wanted to get to know the city and get to know the department I was working in. And Richard Haig had founded the department and had clearly shaped an ethos around landscape architecture. So part of the book was a personal adventure to better understand who Richard Haig was and what this ethos was and what this urban ecological design focus that was clearly shaping landscape architecture internationally. Um, and I wanted to better understand it. So that was the personal reason. The sort of more academic pedagogical teaching reason was I realized in this work that Rich Haig's work was, as I noted, shaping how we were thinking about landscape architecture in significant ways. And yet most people outside, actually, even in Seattle, didn't really acknowledge that. In fact, where it was most acknowledged was internationally. So I would get asked to come to China to speak or to Italy to speak or South Africa to speak about Rich Haig's work. Um, but other people sort of knew him as that um odd but brilliant landscape architect up in Seattle who did that project, Gasworks Park in Bloedel. But they didn't really know much else. And I had to laugh. that I tracked down something like 68 articles on him. And they all essentially, and as a journalist, you'll recognize this, essentially took the same set of ideas and words and sort of reformatted them each time so it looked like a new article, but they were saying the same things and it was fairly thin. It, it didn't really get to the heart of why he did his work or the influence of his work or the reception of his work or where his work came from. So I realized there was a real opportunity to help inform contemporary practice by helping people better understand where these ideas came from, how they were shaped, um, and where where they might go. I'm As a historian, I'm a firm believer that you can't really imagine a different future if you don't understand how we got here.
0: Oh, that's a great point. And I noticed in your book that um, you made the difference that uh, this is a, a critical review and it's not a, a monograph book. Right. Can
1: right.
0: you talk about the difference between the two for a minute?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's an important, as a historian, um, most of us, to be blunt, only write about people after they're dead. Um, <laughs> and so it was... It was a um, a fairly in-depth conversation I had to have with myself and with colleagues and eventually with Rich Haig and Cheryl and his, his wife, um, about what it would mean to write a book about somebody who was still practicing. He was 91 when I started, 91 when I started, um, and... Because what I didn't wasn't interested in doing is doing the kind of monograph that was purely celebrating his work to make a beautiful coffee table book that would um, tell, let everybody know you know what a brilliant designer he was. Um, I was interested in where his ideas came from and what worked and what didn't work, and uh, the kinds of influence he had and where he didn't have influence. I, I was really interested in a historic narrative and a critical narrative of this, breadth of work uh, that he had done, um, not necessarily in just celebrating his work. And I should also note the other big difference is I really wasn't very interested in his personal life. Um, I bring it in in his childhood and where I think it has an influence on his work as a whole, um, but this was not a biography either. It wasn't a, you know, an in-depth biography. um, That part his personal life is his personal life as is mine. Um, I was really interested in his work. Um, So it was important to one of the pieces that was really important. And I I wrote that uh, introduction preface very carefully was talking about how he actually only read one draft of it and it was early on and it was to make sure I had dates and such correct. And then he was not able to read it until it was in print and, actually a, a amusing story. And I still have the um, email, uh, the phone message on my phone. Um, I get sent him when the book came out, I dutifully took him an early copy as authors, we get copies a little bit before it goes public. And I took him over and I dropped it off. And I took a deep breath and thought, all right, here comes. Um, I haven't described Rich Haig, but he is someone who's never at a lack for an opinion, which is probably why we got along so well, um, and I sort of held my breath and thought, okay, he's either going to like it or he's going to hate it, and we'll just have to see, and he called me about a week later, and there's this um, message on my phone that says, this this rich? Your book is full of a lot of hugabaloo but I looked at the footnotes. You got it right. Thanks. <laughs> It was a compliment. And I think it was his way of saying, you know, there are, we all do this. We all have our own memory of, of certain events. or we assume we know what the other side was thinking. And because I went through the archives of the city, you know, I was able to bring out some nuances that let's, let's be kind. He probably just didn't necessarily remember, um, as, as true with any of us, right. We, or we only know our side of the story, um, few of us go back to the you know city archives if we had a meeting with the city to find out, hey, what did, what did they write down and how did they hear that conversation? Um, so I felt like I had done, I had, had met my goal of writing something that he could be proud of, um, and yet it wasn't something that was a marketing or a monograph piece out of his office.
0: Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, that's true. Um, oh, I'll give you a break for talk in just a second. I I did like a historical, uh, research project on the overseas highway. Cause I'm here in the mm. mm-hmm. And I really dug into the archives and I went back and forth, you know, what did this person say? What did that person say? And I was like, yeah, the whole, uh, you know, really critically looking at, at all the evidence and seeing
1: what <clears throat> those I'd say. Yep. Yep. And it's, it's amazing how much more nuanced it often is than we recall. Right. We think everything was black and white and, That person was for me or against me. Um,
0: (laughs) And how it all went down. Well, I I would like to know, uh, can you tell us just a little bit more about uh, Rich?
1: Yeah. So Rich Haig, landscape architect, um, and he grew up in Kentucky, the son of a nurseryman, uh, which I think is important uh, for two reasons, actually. One, as a historian, I can tell you that many of our early uh, landscape architects started out in nurseries. Uh, Warren Manning, many others started out thinking about plants. And one of the misconceptions I think we have about landscape architecture today is either you're a plants person, you know, or you're a systems person. Um, You're more of a design engineering person. And I actually think uh, the best landscape architects bring those together in, in a variety of ways. So he started out as the son of a nurseryman. There's a great story when he was very young, when he awed the, um, a conference of people, of arborist tree people, uh, with being able to know all of his plant, his Latin names of plants. But that was something the son of a nurseryman should know. Um, he also was fortunate that a number of landscape architects came through. And because in that day you could take a train to Louisville, Kentucky, um, you couldn't necessarily get out the same day. So they'd often stay with the Hague family. So he has memories of meeting people like Annette Hoyt Flanders and others when they'd come down to pick out their trees. Um, so he was surrounded in this world. Um, then he will go off to serve uh, in in the war and travel, and see some remarkable landscapes, and really um, question. He writes home about uh, tree planting and seed collecting. He's clearly, he's gotten his dad's bug. Um, He will eventually go to the University of Illinois, and then the University of California, Berkeley, to get his um, bachelor's in landscape architecture, and then his master's in landscape architecture from Harvard. He'll go um, then to Japan as one of the first uh, Fulbright's to go to Japan after World War II. So he saw Japan at a very uh, important and pivotal moment, which is one reason why I essentially do a photo essay of his photo photographs. He's a quite a good photographer, has an incredible eye. So I have these photographs of his time in Japan. Spends two years there, goes back to Berkeley, works briefly with Lawrence Halpern, um, Let's suffice it to say they were two very um, assured, confident young designers, Um, and so Rich soon realized he needed to work on his own, Um, began work on his own, did some very interesting projects, and then essentially gets lured to Seattle uh, to start a new landscape architecture program to become a teacher Um, And that's a really important trajectory that many people don't acknowledge is the importance of teachers and people who teach. And he uh, was mentored by some incredible teachers, Stanley White and Hideo Sasaki um, and others. And he goes on to be an incredible teacher at the University of Washington, um, as well as a practitioner in Seattle in this growing city that was reimagining itself as a major node on the Pacific coast, on the um, Pacific Rim. Um, So he's part of that new Seattle, as well as part of this landscape architecture program. He will go on to do about 500 projects, the vast majority in the Pacific Northwest. He is very much someone who believed in working in the place that you know best. Um, So he does most of his projects, but two of them win gold medals from the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's the only one to win both two medals uh, for two very remarkable projects, which have gone on to influence uh, influence really the field as a whole. I think in both of those cases, Uh, Bloedel Reserve and Gasworks Park. Um, and then he uh, passed away May 9th in 2018, an incredible career and was working really. His office technically closed in 2016, but he's a writer, a thinker, uh, a critic. He was definitely engaged uh, throughout. And his projects in many ways continue to engage the world in, in rethinking. I'm always fascinated by people who come to see his projects or read about him or read his work. And they continue to inspire people in, in thinking and being critical of their own environment and how they shape the world.
0: Oh, wow, this is fascinating. Can you talk about then um, maybe some of his earlier projects that uh, our audience might not be familiar
1: with? Yeah, so there there is some really interesting. So he goes to Japan. Um, And one of the the pieces I find fascinating is in he's in Japan from about 1954, 1955, early 1956. And he comes back and there's a there's a growing fascination about Japanese gardens in the late 50s, early 60s. There's actually uh, James Rose, another landscape architect, makes a quip once that someone once called him and said, you know, I hear that you design Japanese gardens, can you come design me a Japanese garden? And James Rose said, sure, where where is your garden in Japan? Um, You know, the (laughs) idea that you would be doing a Japanese garden in somewhere else, that it was something that you could sort of pick up and plop down somewhere else, um, is antithesis, frankly, to Japanese gardens, um, but it's also antithesis to design. And and Haig would have said the same thing. He wasn't quite as snarky as James Rose. But um, but what he did do is he designed gardens that revealed some of the core pieces of what he learned from Japanese gardens, which were issues of thinking about movement and space and meditation and um, the act of being truly being in a place, the presence in a place, and then also working with land as a art media that is in collaboration with the natural systems. Um, So let me, let me give real examples because that sounds all fairly esoteric and his gardens really aren't particularly esoteric. He does a project for a case study house in California when he first gets back from Japan. And It has these amazing uh, land forms, these early um, pyramidal forms that are emblematic of a way of making space that is about the space itself. The land and the forms of the land are making a garden um, place. And it's, it's a, design where here's a, and I want to rem- remember, right, this is a nurseryman and he could easily have done something that was all about exotic plants or bringing in, you know, uh, crazy plants and making this uh, remarkable sort of collection of plants. But what he does is something simply with land form and a few selected plants that focuses on the garden as this incredibly nuanced and, um, internally focused place, much more complex. We so often think of gardens as somehow just sort of pretty, I don't know, collections of flowers or or different, you know, odd trees. Um, and a garden when it is done well is one of the most complex systems and spatial experiences I think that we can have. And he does that early on um, there. In California, and will do other other gardens that play with landform as a spatial boundary, making land for, land make the make the space, and then plants play off of that. I uh, plays with light and shadow a lot in his plants and his landform, um, and then he'll go on to do the work in um, Seattle, where he's again playing with landform. I think of a. Of a park he did in Everett that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but it's all about pyramids. It there, you know, one he jokes about it co- coming after he had seen um images of Machu Picchu um, and some of those, but it's also clearly a play on his earlier um experiments uh with a Japanese um essence in his gardens. Um a, a, play of landform, a play of, of plants in their, in their most natural and brilliant form, each plant getting its own moment. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, just letting the plant be the plant and not uh, yeah. trimming,
1: it.
0: trimming it into something that it's really not meant to be.
1: Exactly. Or, you know, a plant that just, a tree that just becomes a a hedge, and it sort of doesn't matter, right? Which which plant it is, just as long as it's green and it it serves as a hedge. He would choose the plants where it really mattered, which plant was which, um, and and how you how you experience that garden. It's the camp house and garden of 1958 that he does, for example, that has the mounds. Um, that really shape a space that could have otherwise been another suburban big backyard. And instead it has these landforms with sun and shadow um, and a sense of an intimate space. Well,
0: uh, it was interesting to comment too, you said about, you know, landscape architecture is, uh, we got a lot more space and it is a lot more complex. Not that a house isn't, but it's more complex.
1: Yep. No, it's, you know, it's um, making space in the out of doors. In, in one way, I've always laughed. Bernard Maybach once made the quip that architecture was shelter in case of rain. Something you could probably say in the Bay Area, Seattle, would have that would have been a little tougher. Um, but in some ways, architects get to make walls and define their space. And then they get to sort of work within their own self-defined places, spaces, right, inside the walls. Um, And I'm not going to undermine the the difficulty and the challenge of beautiful walls in that beautiful space. But landscape architects and garden designers are working within the natural world and the sky and the ground. Um, And so they've got to make space within space. It's always nested. It's always connected. It gets back to that idea that we can define the borders of of a landscape based on who owns it or where the street. But of course the air and the wind and the rain um, and the animals they, they don't stop at that edge and go, oh, I'm going from you know Mr. Smith's yard to Mrs. Jones's yard. Um, landscape is always nested. so it's to me it's it's an incredible challenge to create real spaces, spaces that feel human uh, that articulate our, um, relationship to the natural world within this much larger natural world, right? But we, that that one's too big. Um, we need our places that are human scaled, um, and, and landscape architects do that at lots of scales. Whether it's a small garden that I think is an incredible challenge uh, to do that, or it's a big park which has its own set of challenges.
0: So how? So did what kind of projects he start with? I'm assuming he probably started small with residential. He does.
1: He does. Yeah. He starts with small residential gardens, really defining his media, defining the um, ways he wants to approach uh, design. He works with creating spaces with plants and landform and, and things like steps and, you know, all the things, I mean, none of these are sort of brilliant new additions. Um, to the, to the vocabulary of landscape architecture. Um, he does do a few uh, sort of office. The 1950s is an incredible time for corporations who are all, not all, but a vast majority of big corporations. One way that you show you're successful is you end up with a suburban headquarters that it has a beautiful landscape design and merges in right with suburbia. You don't want your headquarters to look like a sore thumb in the middle of the suburban neighborhood. Um, he does one for the Ducks building, uh, which was a Nora Elliott uh, project. And he designs this uh, beautiful uh, building, plant courtyard with birch trees um, and low ground cover and a big, well, well he uh, designed as a big square kind of bench, low table gatherings, lying down space, very typical of Hague to create something that's ambiguous in terms of its uses, which means you can use it in multiple ways. Um, but this courtyard that extends the architecture of the building, but brings people outside and then uh, gives them a space that is scaled to them so they feel comfortable. So it feels not like a residential courtyard, but it feels more human than you might imagine a a corporate courtyard looking like. Um, It feels a human scale. You can, you, you can go sit there um, and have your lunch and probably not imagine that you're sitting in somebody's private courtyard, um, but you're certainly not in an exposed overly formal, overly stiff corporate courtyard. You're in a comfortable place that's inspiring and beautiful. And the birch trees are the shadows, you know, are drifting across the the courtyard itself. And there's a small fountain that you can hear and um, comfortable benches, as I said, that you could sit on the edge of, or a couple of you could sit cross-legged and face each other, or you could lie back and soak in the sun.
0: So uh, here's a, a little different question. So what did yes. his critics say about some of his uh, works?
1: <laughs> um, so early on, not a lot. I, his early work, and, you know, as often happens, the early work gets noticed if people like it. In residential work, you generally, you don't get a lot of critique. Um, if people don't particularly like it, they just tend to ignore it. Um so his early work later he'll get uh, much more criticism for uh being too ambiguous for um, for being uh well, he'll get criticism on two point one is probably uh just related to uh he he's a poet he is uh was a poet he was somebody who uh, had his own way with words. let's just say that he he uses uh, phrases, he talks about making love to the earth. He talks about um, really engaging in the spirit of the place. And so there will be those who find his, his language not specific enough and not technical and engineering enough. You know, if you compare him to someone like Ian McHarg, who writes a whole book kind of giving rules and, and guidelines and methods uh, very clear Haig's approach, you know, is to hang out in the place, to make love to the earth, to get to know the place, to read poetry, to listen to music. Um, and for some, that was probably a little too hippy-dippy for them. Um, and, and I think the other thing is some of his ideas are, are wacky. He was not shy about putting out ideas that he didn't necessarily know how to do yet. Um, you know, when we get to talk about gas works, uh, he didn't know how to do what he was proposing to do. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the ones we know about, he was successful on. Um, but there are times where things he did didn't work. Um, he he didn't have an issue with taking those kinds of risks. Um, that's not true for everybody. Um, and in a, I have to say that in a in a profession that has. I think, in the late 20th century become, or did become, I think it's getting out of it now, but became pretty risk-averse. His approach uh, was, I I think, was just downright threatening um, for some because he was willing to go out on a limb and uh, fight for things that he believed in. Um, And his designs, I should also say that sometimes he got criticism... He did not produce beautiful over-the-mantelpiece designs that people could sort of put up and show, show what a gorgeous design and frame the design of, of the place. I find some of his drawings incredibly inspiring and wonderful, but they're not beautiful design drawings. They're not what you might get out of a firm um, that focuses on beautiful models and beautiful, beautiful designs. Well, I think there's
0: there's lots of places for every kind of design.
1: Right, no kidding.
0: Uh, methods that et cetera. Well, I, I thought it was interesting too. Uh, chapter five. Well, I, I do want to say since this is a listening medium, um, these these photographs are really nice and, and I I really like his. Uh, you got all these like diagrams and yeah. pictures. Really shows a lot about uh, the details.
1: He does. And, and I was going to say, he, when I talk about him not having the beautiful uh, drawings, it is not that he doesn't use drawing. He actually, and one of the pieces that ended up um, something I didn't know about him until I was looking at all of his work is how much he used drawing as a way to both explore ideas, uh, which is something I think students could learn more of, um, but also as a way to, to convey ideas. So his min-max right, is one of the drawings that I show in there. Um, And it's him trying to describe this idea of the min-max approach, which asks the designer to consider the minimum means of getting the maximum effect. So how little could you do to a site to get the most out of the site? So rather than thinking about a site As and I'll get back to the landforms, right? So instead of coming into a site and thinking, okay, so you know, if I flatten this, if I erased everything that was on here and started anew, then I could, you know, create some fantastic new entity. He would say, Come on to the site, sit on the site, learn the site, and figure out what, what could you do with that site, what minimal Insertions. What minimal things could you do to the site? Design interventions, whatever fancy word we want to call it, um, garden the site to to really make that brilliant place that that site could be, given the site itself, given its own history and its own uh, presence. Um, And this will lead absolutely not only into Bloedel but into Gasworks because he goes into Gasworks. This abandoned gasworks plant. And instead of thinking, which everybody else did, how can we get rid of all the stuff, flatten it and start over? His approach was how do I get to know this site and how little can I do to get the maximum effect? So to get back to that drawing, you know, it's a drawing where he's trying to think about how do I visually describe this approach? Um, He also does a lot of drawing, and there's some drawings in the book from Lori Olin, who's another landscape architect who actually studied with Haig for a long time. Using drawing to explore and and to imagine, really taking what's in your head. I say this to students all the time. I can't critique what's in your head, Um, but I can critique it if you put it down on paper. And, And I'm not asking for a beautiful drawing, Um, or beautiful words, but you need to get it out of your head into something that we can both share. And so Rich does a lot of diagramming and drawing to move things from his head um, onto paper so that he can share those ideas and and play with them. There's actually on that, there's a great story. And um, I will have to admit, I was never able to um, fully verify, but Nothing, nothing I came across said this wasn't true, but unfortunately uh, Prentice Blodell had passed away by the time I was doing my book. But the story Rich tells and other people have confirmed is when he is meeting with Prentice Blodell when Blowdell is looking for a designer for Blodell Reserve. And Blodell has interviewed a whole series of landscape architects. He's also he's already worked with Thomas Church, so he knows landscape architects. He's not new to the um to the discipline and all the other landscape architects showed up with big, beautiful drawings of what they imagined they might do. And Rich showed up with a roll of yellow trace paper and a pencil. And he sat there and while he, he and Prentice talked, he drew. And he drew what he heard uh, Prentice Bloedel describing and he drew what he was thinking. And at the end, Prentice Bloedel hired him and which always claims that one reason was it turns out that Prentice Blowdell was colorblind, as um, many people are, and so some of the fancy drawings were not as vibrant. Um, but I think it was probably more about Prentice Blowdell understanding that this was a designer who could think with him. This wasn't a designer that was coming in saying, "Here are all the things I can do with your place." Uh, but this was a designer who was going to sit and get to know the place and get to know Prentice and design with him and design with him in a way that he could understand. He could watch the drawing. I don't know if Prentice ever grabbed the pencil, but he could have. Um, And so they could draw together and they could design together. Um, And I think that was another important way in which Rich used drawing and his ability to draw ideas in really powerful ways.
0: Oh, yeah, there's a lot of very good points there about uh... Yeah, you can't critique what's in your head and then just uh, sitting and drawing um, with the person. That's yeah. what what, a, what an interesting exercise that would be.
1: Yeah. It's why I tell students all the time now, learn to draw. I know the computer is really fancy and does gorgeous things, but learn to draw because when you're sitting down with a client and it could be a corporate client or it could be a residential client or it could be a city government, but if you can sit and draw what that person has just Described to you or asked you about, that is a powerful way of communicating.
0: Oh, yes. And indeed, well, uh, even for me, I wanted to actually learn to draw a little bit better. And I've uh, gone back and learned some more drawing. And uh, awesome. yeah, it's, I love it.
1: Yeah, it's powerful.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you, too, this is, I like this quote. This is kind of interesting. Chapter five He's a teacher's teacher. Yeah. Uh, why is he a teacher's teacher?
1: He's Well, so that was actually, I'm glad you asked about that chapter, because I have to say, when when you told me earlier, I might be able to talk about my favorite part. I think this this role of teacher. Now, let's be honest, I'm a teacher, so maybe that's a little just self-centered. But he, he, first of all, he is taught by some of I think the 20th century's best teacher, Stanley White, in particular, who teaches at University of Illinois, is a teacher for Hideo Sasaki, teacher for Pete Walker, teacher for a whole number. Um, And he's one of those teachers that everybody remembers. And one of the unfortunate pieces about the way we do history and monographs and such is we don't write books about teachers. We write books about people who produce the actual landscapes and the designs and the works of art. And that's fine. but teachers are really important. And I think um, Stanley White was an incredible teacher known for coming in and doing things like playing the violin in class if he needed them to learn something about music and arts and, mm-hmm. and such, reading poetry. Um, and Rich really takes that up. And he goes on to become one of those teachers, uh, the number of stories of people um who got turned on essentially to landscape architecture because they took a class from which is, is remarkable. Um, and in fact, one of the interesting pieces is when he first came to the university of, of Washington in 1958, we didn't have a landscape architecture department. So there's no department for him to teach yet. So they essentially being wise, they say, well, teach architects, teach a class about landscape to architects. Um, and I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect they imagined, you know, he'd teach them, you know, about pretty parks and Olmstead and such. And it would be sort of informative for the architects. Well, what he did is he actually did a whole course where he shared with them his photographs from Japan, his photographs from World War II and traveling and shared his stories and what he had learned from Stanley White That generation of architecture students from 1958 to 1964 um, are some of our best teachers. Uh, Lori Olin went on, he was one of his students. Robert Hanna was one of his students, Grant Jones, Ilza Jones, uh, Don Sakuma. Uh, There's a whole series, uh, uh, Kanichi. There's a whole series of students who were architecture students who then went on to become landscape architects um, because of his teaching. And many of them went on to teach, like Lori and become incredible teachers themselves. And those who stayed architects became, I think in many ways, much better architects now um, because they understood landscape in a very deep and intimate way from Rich's teaching. Um, and he would go on, and even those who didn't become teachers they they became curious or they retained the curiosity of a young student. I actually think they probably came in with the curiosity and education instead of sort of capping that. Uh, Rich opens that up. So his whole way of thinking about practice was curiosity, which to me is what teaching is about, right? The best thing I can do is give students enough knowledge that they ask new questions and they become more curious. I never want a student to walk out of a, Classroom and say, okay, I got that. I understand everything I need to know about X, Y, or Z. You want them to walk out and go, well, if that's true, then why not this or why that? Um, and that's rich. That's uh, Rich's approach, which was to teach curiosity um, and to teach what he learned, and then to teach people who would then go on to teach. Whether it was formally, like Lori at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, or it was more informally like Grant Jones, who just uh, was an incredible mentor for people who either moved through his office, Jones and Jones in Seattle um, or uh, you know got to know him in other ways clients patrons etc he He also uh, was a teacher throughout his continues to be a teacher throughout his life
0: oh. I just, I love that. That's true. Okay. Well, I'm going to give a shout out to, that's true. You remember your favorite teachers forever um, and the ones that inspire you and not just ones that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be great. I want to learn, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. a couple, uh, I'm going to give a shout out, Professor Abreu and uh, Professor Bueno. Um, yeah. really, They're really awesome. And I, I don't think I'll ever forget, you know, yeah. what I learned and take it from there.
1: Yeah, no, and I think it's it's yeah, I think it's incredibly important. And I think one of the pieces that's so important to Rich that we don't always acknowledge is his work and his teaching were intimately connected. He could not have done one without the other, is my belief. I don't I have ne- I never asked him that question, so I can't claim that he would argue that, but I I don't think. And it wasn't just about that people move back and forth. It's it's that he really saw saw teaching in, in everything he did. Um, yeah. Who was your favorite teacher? Yeah, incredible. Incredible. Te- I, I just I have to laugh about how many times um, people have said to me, Yeah, I was studying, I, you know, studying English or I was studying to be an engineer or studying to be, you know, French literature. And I took this course from this guy named Rich Haig. Do you know him? And then I realized that I wanted to do landscape architecture, I wanted to get involved in the environment and wanted to get involved in the environmental movement and if they didn't switch their careers as a whole they would they would switch the they would alter the approach they took um and that's that's an amazing legacy
0: yeah cuz not only did he do great projects then yeah. he taught yeah that's that's the whole point right
1: right and he so he has people all over the world who have learned from him and i hope this book i mean one of the reasons um I didn't start the book for this I started so they could understand the history but by the end I realized I also wanted to pass on some of the things that he had taught those lucky enough to work with him in person and so I hope it that sounds so cliche and sort of goofy but um I I I hope students can read this book and be inspired um to think about landscape in really powerful ways and and that ability to to be curious and to be curious about the site and always see the land as something we can work with um and and be in relationship with, which was core to Richard's practice.
0: Oh, that's a lovely way to end this. So uh, my last question is, you know, uh, th- thank you so much for being here today. I, I sure. know we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, what are you working on now?
1: What am I working on? So what I'm working on now is actually thinking about the larger Seattle region. And um, historically, we always think of the rural and the urban, the hinterlands and the city. And um, very quickly, if you think about uh, the hinterlands, you will, if you look into it, you'll realize that's where we often get our energy and our food, right? All the things that support the city. Um, so I'm looking at the North Cascade set of dams that produce over 33% of the electricity for Seattle. So and they're out in nature, right? So I'm calling it. We're calling it. I'm working with Ken Yokum on this at Landscape Architecture at University of Washington, calling it infrastructural wilderness. So this idea that um, the urban landscape extends out into the hinterlands, and that we need to stop making these great divides and actually understand the way we are all connected together, and thinking about landscapes as systems that extend far beyond our political boundaries or our private and social boundaries.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating. And uh, I hope you write some more books.
1: Thank you. Me too.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure. And again, uh, thank you all for listening today. Uh, the book is The Landscape Architecture of Richard Hag, uh, from Modern Space to Urban Ecological Design by Thaisa Way, published by the University of Washington Press in 2015. And this has been Tricia Keffer, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.